before we actually go into what the Bible says about spiritual gifts, I want to ask a, or I want to ask and answer a question. And let me start by introducing it with these thoughts. I read an article that said there's, if you track charismatic movement and Pentecostalism, it's growing. I have a lot of um, history with it. My mom was raised Pentecostal in San Antonio, Texas, where she was born and raised. Um, her parents took her to church until she was 12. And she was raised in a highly charismatic with all that things that we've seen going on. Um, but when she was 12, her family all stopped going to church because none of them were Christians really to begin with. My mom said, if I go to church, can I go on my own? And she walked to church ever since she was 12. And she decided she didn't like that church because you, I know you never met my mother really, but my mother's very quiet, shy, and going to a church where people were throwing themselves down the aisles and screaming and doing all this stuff was about as opposite from my mom as you could possibly get. Because that was a great thing because she ended up going to the Baptist church since she was walking. It was much closer and much more sedate. And she went there and got saved. And that changed her life. My dad, on his side of the family, I have to this day, many of my cousins and relatives are Assemblies of God. And uh, I've... I understand all the things that they believe. I've talked to them about it before, and I've actually seen what they believe. And so I'm very familiar with what goes on in a lot of those things. And I've studied it out. And did you know that what would be continuationists, people who believe that there are still signs and wonders and healings and tongues and all that taking place in our day, there are 500 million people who adhere to that belief. Even Catholics at a billion Catholics believe that God is still doing miraculous things through people today and, and doing miracles. So the question is, how can, in some way, shape, or form, a billion Catholics, 500 million charismatic people, all believe that on some level, to some degree, that this is taking place, how can they all be wrong? I've been asked that before. And I want to give you an answer tonight. And again, I, again, I want to tell you respectfully that I know a lot of people that I love take these beliefs. And so I'm not doing it in a demeaning way tonight. I want to be as respectful as I possibly can. But I want to tell you as strongly as I can that I totally, wholeheartedly disagree with that position. Here's why. Why are there millions, hundreds of millions of people going to these churches in our country? And basically, if you, want, if you understand, outside of our country, it's way more popular and why is that taking place? Um, here's what I, my take on it is. Because I think that a lot of people, and this is not even people who are charismatic, Pentecostal, or even go to church. I think it's really true across our culture uh, and our world at large. And that is people are looking for an experience. And listen, not just any experience. People who are religious, here's what I think. They want something more than God. Um, and by that, I mean not something more for God, um, not something by God. They want something more than God. You look at our culture today and the rise of suicide. You look at the culture today and the unbelievable psychological issues that people are 
being destroyed by and don't have a handle on depression, anxiety, fear. It's at an all-time high, even though we have more things in our culture that you could possibly want, and you have more than ever before in history. The people's lives are at an all-time low. And let me tell you, people want something. They don't want an intangible God that they can't feel or see or touch. They want something more than that. I would tell you that this is also the basis and the bottom line of why a lot of churches and evangelical churches in our circles in America have gone to having experientially centered and oriented church services, including all the lights and the smoke and the fog and the rock bands and people are having introductory songs. When you walk in to our church service, you'll hear background music of Christian songs or things that you're familiar with. They have all kinds of things. I've been to church. They had Led Zeppelin. They had all kinds of secular music by Bon Jovi. All kinds of things. When you walk into church nowadays, people want an experience. They want something more than what God himself offers to them in the scriptures. They want more spiritual success, more spiritual power, more spiritual popularity with people. They want intimacy that they can't get from, in their minds from just reading the Bible. They're looking for a new level of satisfaction, pleasure, and joy that they're not getting by just having the truth. And so what they do is exchange the truth for experience. And it's something that is taking place all across our America, America and the world, and I think has now been inundated and embedded in our church experience. So out of that, let me give you a principle to start with. Inward displays of the Spirit, not outward displays of the Spirit, are the biblical signs of spiritual maturity. Almost every charismatic person I've ever talked to says that you're really not baptized in the spirit you're not really saved unless you can speak in tongues and I would tell you that that is as far from scripture as possible and I'll tell you this inward displays of the spirit and by that I mean this the fruits of the spirit character morality principles uh, patience long-suffering gentleness meekness all the things about being spirit controlled but today people are opting to be out of control and then telling you it's the spirit it is the complete opposite of what the scriptures teach But it is prominent today because people want the outward displays of the Spirit to demonstrate whether they're spiritually mature or not. And I would say the Bible teaches the opposite. Let me tell you how that looks. Luke 16, I hope you're there. And you're never going to probably hear anyone use this in a, (laughs) a presentation or a lesson on spiritual gifts. But let me tell you, as far as this part goes about experience over truth... In the story that Jesus tells of the rich man and Lazarus, Lazarus dies and he wakes up in Sheol, Hades. And he is in flames being tormented. And he wants this. These things don't change in hell. You're the same person you are, just worse. And here's what he wants. He bossed Lazarus around in life and now he's going to do it in death. He's not changed one iota, even though he knows this place is real. He knows why he's there. Um, But he hasn't changed one iota, even though he's confronted with the truth by Abraham and he knows why he's there and he knows he's not getting out. He's still ordering Lazarus around and he wants to tell Abraham, tell Lazarus to go back, you know, or to come over and bring water to me. And then he wants him to go back and tell his brothers so they won't come to this place. But in this passage... It says in verse 27 of Luke 16, Then I beg you, Father, meaning Abraham, to send him, Lazarus, to my father's house. 
For I have five brothers, so that he may warn, warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Now watch. Abraham's response to that is this. They have Moses and the prophets, and let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, a miraculous sign, then they will repent. See, you know what he believes? He believes they need an experience. Abraham says, you know what? They just need the power of God's word. And at that time, it was Moses and the prophets. If they would just listen to Moses and the prophets and they would obey Moses and the prophets, they would never come to this place. Like you heard it, but you never did it. See, it's the, he says what they really need is the most class number one miracle of all someone raises from the dead. And can I tell you, Jesus proved that truth to be exactly right when he raised from the dead. And the vast majority of the religious leaders and even of Israel rejected him. And even until this day, even though he was resurrected, the greatest sign there has ever been. So I can tell you this. Here's what God thinks. It's truth. Truth, the word of God and its truth, is the most powerful force in all the world. Way more than any miraculous sign or anything, even including someone being raised from the dead. But that's not all. It's not just that the truth is more powerful. If you'll turn to Matthew chapter 7. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus is preaching and teaching. He makes an astounding statement that I think that has some of the scariest words in all of Scripture located in them. In Matthew 7, 21, Jesus says, Now everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father, by the way, which would be the word of God, who is in heaven, on that day, meaning that judgment day, Many will say, notice, many will say, they'll say the catchphrase. They have the religious verbiage down. Lord, Lord. Now watch, what do they say to him? Why do they think they're going to enter? Did we not prophesy in your name revelatory gift? Do we not cast out demons in your name, signs and wonders? And do many mighty works in your name, all of them, in your name, prophecy, ecbalistic ministries, or casting out demons, signs and wonders, all of those. And Jesus says this, on that day, I disown you. He'll say, I never knew you. You see, outward displays of the Holy Spirit are not, they're not measures of whether you are right with God or even know God. So we can't look at the things that people are doing and wondering, oh, those people must have great power. They must be really spiritual. And the reality is the, it could be most likely the opposite of all of that. So the question I want to pose tonight is not should God, not if God is doing miracles on behalf of people today, but whether people should be doing miracles on the behalf of God. Should there, those things be taking place? And when you watch them or you see them in person or on TV, what are we to make of them? Before we go any further, let me give you some definitions so you know what I'm talking about when I say a few things. Continuationists. Continuationists are people who believe that the spiritual gifts given by God 
through the Holy Spirit, recorded in the New Testament, are still in use today. So they would look at all the spiritual lists in the Bible of all the spiritual gifts, and they would say apostles some, and, and spiritual gifts, tongues, healings, merit, all those things can still be happening today. That's not the position that I take or we as a church take. We are cessationists. Cessationist means stopped, it ceased. People who believe that the spiritual gifts given by God through the Holy Spirit recorded in the New Testament are no longer in use. So it is up to me tonight to show you why that that's the position we hold and why it is biblically true. You can write them down. We're not going to refer to them tonight. But there are three, or I should say four major texts in the Bible that list all the spiritual gifts. Romans 12, verses 6 through 8. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10 and verse 28 and Ephesians 4, 11. And those lists, just listen to me real quick, include these spiritual gifts. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, ability to distinguish between spirits, pastor, teacher, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, exhorting, working miracles, gifts of healing, gifts of service, leading, helping, administration, tongues, interpretation of tongues. Those are some of the gifts or all of the gifts as far as we know that were true in New Testament times. And I want to say it one more time. Spiritual gifts, all of them are supernatural. I know that we mean well, but when many people say today that they have a spiritual gift, they have in their mind an ability or talent that you have. Someone must say, well, you have this spiritual gift you might say, my wife, well, yeah, the spiritual gift of music because you can play the piano and you can do that. And so that's not what the Bible's talking about. I know that God may help you in, in, in sense that you work hard at things and you, you practice a lot of biblical traits that you've learned. But your ability to sing or your ability to play an instrument or your ability to play sports or your ability to do something, or you're very intellectual, you're very smart, you do well in school. Those are all talents and abilities that you develop and you work at. Spiritual gifts are not worked at. They're not developed over time. They're instantaneous gifts given by God supernaturally. So they're in a completely different category than talents and abilities. So the question is, out of all those ones that I listed there, and those three or four passages that list out for spiritual gifts, are any of those today around, are those gifts still, and should they still be practiced Another side, if I could just flip it over, the real question behind that question is, is the Bible enough? Do we need anything more than what God has given to us in Scripture? Is it complete? So the rest of my time, which isn't much, I'm going to give you the answer to that. What was the purpose originally for spiritual gifts? Ephesians chapter 2, if you'll turn there. Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to run down and build on an argument and make four steps and we'll be done. Why did God give spiritual gifts and what were they for? And in answering that, you'll find out if that reason still exists. Spiritual gifts, if you're taking notes, were foundational to the church. They were there at the beginning of the church Because we needed revelation from God to know how to be together as the church, Jew and Gentile, and all the things he wanted us to become in the body of Christ, but we didn't have the New Testament yet. And so God gave spiritual gifts, many of them revelatory, to give us instruction and information on that. 
And here's what the Bible says that Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. What is that household built on? It's built on the foundation, underline it, of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being, I should say, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. Now, the two offices that the foundational gifts were based on were apostles, you can read them for yourself, and prophets. Stay with me, ready? Class, this is more of a class tonight, right? Let me tell you the order in which Paul wrote his epistles chronologically, because it matters. The first book he wrote was the book of Galatians. After that, he wrote First and Second Thessalonians. After that, he wrote First and Second Corinthians. And then he wrote Romans. And then he wrote Ephesians. And then Colossians, Philemon, Philippians. And then Titus. And the last thing he wrote was First and Second Timothy, unless you count Hebrews, which was at the end of it too as well. So here's what the Bible says. That when the spiritual gifts were given, ready? They were in the book of Corinthians, Romans, and Ephesians. Those were the middle years that he was writing inspired literature or or books of the Bible. And all of those gifts were there. Romans and its list, which was his earliest one that has a gift list other than Corinthians, has none of the signed gifts in it. The listing of them, do not, they don't, they don't, there's nothing in there about doing miracles or healings or none of, that, none of that is listed in there. It's not even mentioned on the list of the gifts. It's only in the Corinthians one and then a little bit later Ephesians has them and it, it mentions offices but none of the gifts, the sign gifts. And so the Apostle Paul himself tells us, if you want to look it up you can, just write down the reference, In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 8 and 9, he says, After his resurrection, he appeared to all of these people, and he appeared to me, he says, 1 Corinthians 15, 8 and 9, last of all, he is the last apostle, he calls himself. So what was the church built on? What was the foundation? Apostles and prophets. Did you ever read the book of Acts and be very closely mindful of the details When the book of Acts opens up, they're in the upper room together, kind of still hiding out a little bit. And the Bible says that they have to get together and make a really important decision. Does anyone remember what that decision is in Acts 1? Say it again, Mike. Replacing Judas. Judas hung himself and he is dead. And now instead of 12, they have 11 apostles. And so since he's dead, they can't go forward until they get a replacement for him because they have to have the number what it ought to be. And so they take a vote between, right? And Matthias, I think if you say his name that correctly, that's who is chosen and he replaces Judas. Fast forward a number of years. Acts covers 30 years of ministry. So maybe about 8 or 10 or maybe a little bit more years later, they have Acts 12. And Peter's in prison. But before that, in Acts 12, the second verse, it says that the first person that Herod captured was James, who was the son of John. And then he was beheaded in prison. Did you notice the difference between Acts 12 and Acts 1? They don't replace James. Why? 
because there are no more need for apostles because they're going off the scene. Paul is the last one. And when they all died, John the apostle seemingly being the last one, there weren't any more apostles. But see, here's what the Bible says. The church foundationally was built on the apostles. And the apostles and the prophets were given all of the sign gifts and all the revelatory gifts for this reason. Because through them, God committed the revelation that he wanted to have to help the early church to be able to establish it. And behind the miraculous things that they did... They were able to authenticate that message with the power of God that the apostles and the prophets had. And so there is no more big A apostles. There are little apostles because the word means to be sent one. So there are still people who are sent today. And in that sense, missionaries and all of us who go on mission with God are sent. But big A apostles like James and John and Paul and Peter, they no longer exist. So what do we begin to see? We begin to see as the New Testament wanes on and more of Scripture that is written, the main offices that had the gifts and the purposes for which they are intended are beginning to fade away. If you look in this passage and a couple other ones, you'll find that apostle and prophets, including the Ephesians 4 passage, are always put together. And the reason is, is that because they both displayed the sign gifts and the revelatory gifts. We don't have time tonight, but if you take the time, there's two different main places in the book of Deuteronomy that show the requirements for someone to be considered a prophet. And one of the, the prophets that you had to be, one of the requirements is that you could never give a prophecy that didn't come true. And even one time that you give a fallible prophecy that was an error, you would be stoned. That's how serious God took it. And so I can tell you this, the prophets, and there were many in the Old and New Testament, but they also are beginning to wane, and there aren't any more after the New Testament writing. And even today, there are many people who claim to be prophets, but they are liars. Um, Like in the Antichrist in the tribulation period who will have the false prophet, um, those are true today as well. But there are no error-free people who are speaking, and every time they speak, they speak the word of God without error, with absolute accuracy that is not taking place. Now listen, I say those things for a reason, because if the foundation of the church were the apostles and the prophets, and the apostles and the prophets are no longer in existence, which, by the way, read it for yourself, I don't know of very few, very many at all, if there are any, any charismatics who believe that apostles are around today. Even they can't dispute that from Scripture. So they would say there are no apostles, and only a few would say there are prophets. But they say those two offices are mainly gone, but yet all the gifts are there. And I can tell you from Scripture that can't be possible because all of them are connected. They're connected. And you know why? Because they were there for the same purposes. So if you don't have apostles anymore, and you don't have prophets anymore... Here's the logical conclusion. Then there aren't any more miraculous things going on. And that's what we believe is cessationism. You know, if you read the scriptures, you'll find that when Peter walked by in the early times of the New Testament church, that people said, if I could just get his shadow to fall on me, then I'll be healed. Jesus, if you just touched the hem of his garment, if you reached out and touched him, you could be healed. Paul, he had a work apron because he was a tent maker, or rather a leather worker, and he would have like a a cloth that he would wear when he would do his night side job work, so to speak, right? 
And so people said, if I could just touch that handkerchief that he had, it was on his body, then I could be healed. See, those are miraculous things. And those were all taking place. And God was the source of them. But there are no sign gifts at all mentioned in the book of Romans. The only church who really gets a heavy dose of that is Corinthians, which was one of Paul's earlier epistles. And he tells them that they are wrong in their emphasis because they are a spirit gift centered church instead of a word centered church. And most of the epistles upbraiding them for that and many other issues, morality and otherwise, that they are facing. So certainly Corinthians wouldn't be a church that we want to emulate by any stretch. And so by time Paul writes Romans, he's not talking about signs anymore. He's not talking about tongues. He's not talking about miracles. In fact, if you read in the book of Acts, Paul was preaching one night, and this may be you if I go on too much longer. There was a guy sitting up in the balcony. He's preaching a message, and he preached till midnight, Paul did. Aren't you glad? See, I'm getting you out of here at 7 o'clock. I'm saving you five hours. This guy was up there listening to the preacher. He, he, he starts, he, he falls asleep, he falls over, falls out the window, and he dies. Can you imagine the worst thing in the world while you're doing a sermon? But the Bible says that Paul comes down there and touches him and heals him. See, he, can, he did that. But I want you to read the rest of the New Testament after Acts. Right? After that story, which was early on in Paul's career comparatively. The Bible says that that guy's name was Eutychus. But here's how Paul talks in Philemon, which was far later. He says, Epaphroditus is sick. Or I'm sorry, not Philemon, Philippians 2. He's sick and was nigh unto death. And he says, he's still sick. And I didn't, the Bible says he doesn't do anything to heal him. 2 Timothy 4, his last letter of his life, he says, I left Trophimus in Miletus ill. So he's with both of these guys. They both have sicknesses. At one point, the guy was almost sick unto death, and Paul did nothing to heal them. Although we know he can, because he healed Eutychus when he fell out the window. But why heal him and not these two? Jesus walks by the pool of Siloam, and he goes by, and everybody's trying to get into the pool because they have this idea that the angel comes and stirs the waters. If you get in first, you'll be healed. Do you ever wonder why Jesus goes around and there's hundreds of people laying around this pool, and out of all of them, he picks one guy. Why didn't he just go around to all the people that were sick? Why didn't he touch all of them? Why? Because all the miraculous things that Jesus and Peter and Paul had purpose. They are authenticating the message. It wasn't as good as that can be. It wasn't just to go around and make sure everybody's not sick. The idea was, see, I'm telling you I'm speaking the words of God. And because you don't have them for yourself, I'm going to prove to you I'm speaking the words of God because I have God's power. That was absolutely foundational to the early church. But can I tell you, church, that isn't needed anymore. You know why? We have his words. We have the most powerful thing that you could ever possibly want to hold in your hand. And it's the Bible. So if there are no apostles, that means there are no prophets. And if there are no apostles and prophets, that means there are no miraculous things going on today. And that also means this, if I can say it fourthly, is there aren't any revelatory gifts, tongues being one of them. So the person who asked the question, um, what do I tell someone? Hopefully you can tell them a little bit of this. 
1 Corinthians 13, and I'll be done, and hopefully we'll have a time for a question or two. 1 Corinthians 13, if you'll turn there for my last passage. The big debate is, if you don't know this already, what does the word perfect mean? I'll cut right to the main point. 1 Corinthians 13, 8. Context, real quick. 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is about spiritual gifts and how to use them in your church because there was a lot of abuse and how they were being used. They were using in very selfish, proud, self-showing-off kind of ways in Corinth and it was messing the whole church up in all kinds of ways. So here's what Paul says in a chapter that is often used in marriages, but I'm sorry to blow a bubble that it doesn't have anything to do with marriage. But it has a lot to do with love because love is how you use spiritual gifts in the church. They weren't doing anything loving when they were doing it. So 1 Corinthians 13, 8 reads, Love never ends. As for prophecies, now watch, all kinds of revelatory things. They will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know, here's the connector. Here's the reason why those are going to pass away. See the little word for? It connects it. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when, here's the key phrase. When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. What is the perfect? Well, I'm telling you it's not so easy. Because I found ten different answers for it. (laughs) But I'll tell you what. The traditional view is the one I still hold to. Even though the most popular view right now is that the perfect means when Jesus comes again. And I'm going to tell you why I believe that's wrong scripturally and why I believe it's wrong because it's a Pandora's box. Because if you believe that all the gifts are available till Jesus comes back again, which I don't know when, maybe today, praise God. But if it's many, many more years away, that means all of church history up until now and however many more years it goes forward that all these things could possibly be true and people can tell you things and they could tell you that this is God talking to them and I'm telling you it's a Pandora's box. But that's only a logical explanation. Here's what I think it believes because the context bears it out. I can tell you this, that the word perfect is never describing in the Bible Jesus' return. I can tell you the term face-to-face in the Bible that's in this text never talks about eschatological things or Jesus' return. Never, not once. The whole context is about revelatory gifts. The return of Jesus is not a revelatory gift. It doesn't fit the comparison between what is complete and what is partial. So let me tell you what it does mean. Here's what it says in verse 10. But when the perfect comes... The partial will be done away with. And then there's an analogy. When I was a child, and the word child was used four times, I was a child, I spoke as a child, thought as a child, child for those. And then he says, but when I became a man, and the whole analogy is this, going from immaturity to maturity, going to be from incomplete to complete. And here's what he's saying. Growing up, the Bible, and, and, and here's what happened. Revelation has gone from partial to complete, from immaturity in the Old Testament under Moses and the law and the prophets to the completion of it, the fulfillment of it, the maturity of it has come to pass in the New Testament. Hold your finger here, and we don't have time tonight too much, but turn to Ephesians one more time in chapter four. Is there another place in the New Testament where God talks about revelation in the church and its fulfillment 
using the analogy of children growing up and maturing and becoming adults. I think he does. And it's in the passage where spiritual gifts are mentioned. Could you look at Ephesians 4 and verse 11? He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, till when? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. So when we grow up and those gifts are necessary until we come to mature manhood and the knowledge of God in Christ, which I believe is given to us in the scriptures, and what does that keep us from? To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro. And I think what he's trying to say is the word of God, as we read the revelation and God gives us the revelation, we come to a unity as Jew and Gentile in the church. We have the knowledge of all that God is for us. We won't be tossed around anymore. Here's why. Because we have come to maturity. We have got the fullness of God's revelation and we know exactly how he wants us to live in every circumstance, in every situation. Let me close with this. It says, when that partial is done away with, and what I believe is the canon of Scripture, the Bible has been completed, the other ones are going to pass away because the Bible has come to its maturity. And he says, for now we see, verse 12, in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. That phrase, face to face, is a revelatory term, not a term about Jesus coming back, Never once used that way. It is used of Jacob having a dialogue verbally with God on Peniel when he made his hip go out of joint. It's talked about Moses when God and him had a conversation together in Exodus 33. Gideon in Judges 6.22 has a dialogue with God. Jeremiah has a dialogue with God. Ezekiel has a dialogue with God. 1 John and all the other uses, every single time it's used, it's revelatory and two people are having a conversation and the point of it is, is they are having an intimate talk where things are absolutely clear. You know what Paul's saying? There's coming a day, someday, from where he was, the Bible will be complete God's revelation will not be partial, so it's unclear. There'll be coming a day when the Bible is complete that we will have a face-to-face revelation with God that is so complete, so clear, that we won't need all these other things. And all of those things will pass away because they're only partial, because when the full canon of Scripture comes, you will know God in the most intimate way possible. And so tonight, I don't speak in tongues, Pastor Walker. I'm not out trying to heal people. I'm not going to the hospital to do all that. What does that mean for me? It means that you hold in your hand the greatest treasure in this whole world. Can I tell you this? The greatest experience with God you'll ever have is not in a church service when the music is loud and great. It's not when something great happens on the... Let me tell you this. This is the greatest experience with God you could ever possibly imagine. But see, if you don't realize that, you'll find yourself looking for it in something more than God other places too. And that's what our world's about. And too many people in our churches are about the same thing. And what they miss is the most powerful, life-transforming, changing thing that could possibly take place in your life. And that is to know the God of this book intimately. You can know him face to face. 
See, before this Bible was completed, if you saw God face to face, you would die. But now because of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God, 2 Corinthians 4 says, we can see him face to face and it means life. The greatest life you could possibly want or possibly ever have.